it came out in interviews a couple of days ago that we had two schools of thought happening. One was the school of thought that said that we don't talk about suffering enough. And the other was the school of thought that said we don't talk about joy enough. So tonight's talk is for those of you who think we don't talk about suffering enough. And the, <laughs> the other school will just have to be patient. <laughs> Tonight I wanted to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Once again, these are the truth of suffering. It's hard to be a human being. The cause of suffering. The craving or wanting in the mind. The cessation of suffering. That because there is suffering, there is also cessation to the suffering. And the way leading to the cessation of suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. Actually, it gives me great joy (laughs) to speak about these (laughs) because they're so central to the Buddhist teachings. In whatever tradition, it really holds in it the essence, what he realized as he sat there under the Bodhi tree. It was also his first teaching to his five former friends, the ascetic monks in Deer Park. And this very teaching is what set in motion the wheel of Dharma as it comes to us today. So it's very significant to each of us. And being that it is central to the Buddhist teachings, it means that it's something practical and down-to-earth, that is really something we can come to know and realize in this very life. The Buddhist teachings are always grounded in the here and now, and yet lead us to the awakening of our highest wisdom. The Four Noble Truths are said to be such because they were discovered by a Noble One. They can be fully realized by Noble Ones. And because they are real and not unreal, dealing with reality. So what is it to be a Noble One? A noble one is not meant to be someone who is born into really pristine circumstances or royalty. Nor is it meant to be a once and in eternity happening or of a great sage being born. Instead, it refers to someone has through seen clearly, seen into the true nature of life. In seeing clearly, a noble one understands the unsatisfactoriness that is inherent in conditioned reality because it is impermanent. It sees that there is no permanent self as an entity. And it takes us to living in the purity of heart and mind. And through history, there's all kinds of stories 
of many different types of beings becoming noble ones, householders, children, seven years old, murderers, dullards, prostitutes, criminals. These people were able to become noble ones. Not that they continued to behave in ways that were hurtful or harmful, but they could see into and understand, fully realize the Four Noble Truths. So it's important to remember that each being has the potential to be a noble one. It's not just a chosen few. The Buddha also presented these truths in a way that did not require that one either accept or reject them, but that one come to investigate them and know them for oneself. Whatever conditions we may find ourselves to be in, the Four Noble Truths point toward a universal experience. Whether we live in the life of luxury and comfort, or are living in deep poverty in the slums of a major city, whether we're born into royalty or a working-class family, we can all come across a sense of lack in our lives. If the situation of our life is comfortable, stable, having everything we want materially, there may still be a feeling of superficiality, boredom, listlessness, or a sense that there's some hidden meaning to life that we just aren't seeing. It can be experienced as a mild dissatisfaction, a weariness, or as strong as complete despair. As well as a sense of lack, that as a human being, we are often faced with many difficult and challenging aspects to being alive in a body. For many of us, when we hit suffering, we think that maybe we've done something wrong. We are missing something, or that we haven't quite lived up to our own expectations or others' expectations of us. And in this way, we start to take the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, personally. It's even common in a three-month retreat, as we sit here, and we begin to see into the first noble truth, that we begin to think it's because our practice isn't good enough, that we're doing something wrong, that if we were a better meditator, we wouldn't be experiencing unpleasant circumstances. I've noticed this sense of lack at times in my own practice when I periodically throw in the phrase, this is it. Sometimes I rest comfortably with that. Other times it goes, this is it? (laughs) It becomes quite revealing. So what is meant by the truth of suffering? And as has 
as gets said, suffering doesn't translate so well for us. We, because we think of it in the most tragic sense of people who are hungry, homeless, sick, children without parents, or people who've been emotionally or physically abused. We also relate to it in strong, unpleasant emotional states. But to really understand suffering in the way the Buddha meant, we go back to the word dukkha. And dukkha is made up of two words. The first is du, which means bad, low, mean, or vulgar. And ka, which means empty or hollow. One way to describe it is to say that which is bad because it is empty, unsubstantial, unsatisfactory, or illusory. Carol spoke earlier in the retreat about the different kinds of dukkha. But in case you're like me and don't often retain things, (laughs) or just simply because um, the understanding of suffering is so central to the Four Noble Truths, I will briefly revisit them. So the first is how we normally think of suffering, bodily or mental feeling of pain, and this is dukkha dukkha. The second is suffering due to the change or the possibility of change. Because mind and body are always changing, this is not a place where lasting happiness can be found. It is the transience that comes from happiness being unreliable in experience itself. This is very... (laughs) My Pali is not so good. (laughs) Viparinama dukkha. It points to how even the happiest mind states are suffering. Even meditative states are dukkha because they are subject to change. However blissful, joyful they may be, they are still impermanent. This is from Ajahn Chah. Conditions all go their own natural way. Whether we laugh or cry over them, they just go their own way. And there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. (laughs) Everything falls apart in the end. (laughs) So through the understanding of this kind of dukkha, we we stop trying to make things perfect, trying to get things just right. The third form of suffering refers to suffering that is inherent in formations and the oppressive nature of these formations because of their continual arising and passing away. This causes the state of dis-ease, unrest, or instability, which is inherent in the arising and passing away of experience. And this is sankara dukkha. can be experiences that are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Conditions are always changing, with nothing to hang on to, no security, 
there's an aspect to this which is tiring, this endless change. We see it in a general way in our lives. We're just what it takes to take care of ourselves. You know, the getting up in the morning, taking care of our body, washing, cleaning, feeding our body, getting ready to go to work, to be able to support ourselves, to have a roof over our head, to have food on the table, working all day, during the day, having to take care of this body, going to the toilet, feeding it again, the end of the day, having to feed it to rest, to relax a bit so we don't become too stressed out. (laughs) And we experience this on retreat. Just look at what happens when it's a laundry day, how much that takes. Even when we simplify our life, there's so much care needed. In a sitting, we experience it when we come in and sit down with the best of intention to sit still for a long period of time. And then the body starts to hurt, starts to throb in one place, ache in another. We become restless with it. At some point, we need to move, either to, to get relief from the pain or to relieve the body or to feed it. We also see this kind of dukkha at the end of a day. I don't know how it is for you, but I've had many days where at the end of a day I go and get into bed and to know one more thing, no thank you. <laughs> I just want to pull the covers up over my head. It's enough. <laughs> so it's the oppressive nature of changing conditions. The Buddha described the truth of suffering as recognition of suffering in the pain of birth, old age, death, sorrow, pain, grief, despair, association with the unloved and separation from the loved and not getting what we want. In short, he said it was clinging to the five mental aggregates or five khandhas that are material form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So Buddha talked about the pain of birth. And in my own mind, and I I don't know if this is because I've never actually born a child, but I know that the association of birth is quite a joyful event, a new being being born. But Buddha saw it quite differently. He described birth as becoming. And inherent in becoming is much dukkha, some which is obvious and some which is concealed, not yet clearly seen. So just taking a look at the birth process. First, there's life inside a womb, being completely dependent and connected to our mothers. When she's hungry, we get food. Some of it agrees with us, Some of it doesn't. When she moves around, we're forced to move around too. When she sleeps, we're stationary and sometimes get restless. When she gets angry, we feel her fire. And then maybe it does have some form of pleasantness to it. But one day, things dramatically changed. We find ourselves being squeezed 
squeezed very hard. And then suddenly, there's bright lights. There's forms. We have no idea what these forms are. There's the contact of just the air on our skin for the first time. Our whole realm of senses, our our senses get bombarded with new sensations. While we were in the womb, we had a constant supply of nourishment. Now it's not always there. We have to learn to find nourishment, at times having to demand nourishment. It becomes a struggle for basic survival. And when we are born, it also means we will die. It's a certainty. Before death, there is likely to be sickness and decay, mental pain. This is just all inherent in being born. And the birth that we experience as a child is much the same as the birth of experience that in the moment of identifying with experience, there becomes the becoming, where we become. This belongs to I, me, or mine. And then moving into wanting to continue this or wanting it to go away. It's probably not so difficult to see the pain or the suffering that is in the aging process. As we go through the aging process, the body goes through many, many changes. (laughs) Even as a child in the healthiest of bodies, if we grew too fast, this was painful. And then in the aging process of just simply growing up, I know for myself at times it was excruciating. At times, I wanted to be growing up. And then once I fell into the category of growing up, then starting to want to hang on to my youthfulness. I'd like to share a joke that someone recently sent to me that expresses something of our desire to hang on to our youthfulness. A middle-aged woman had a heart attack and was taken to the hospital. While on the operating table, she had a near-death experience. Seeing God, she asked him, Is my time up? God said, No, you have another 43 years, 2 months, and 8 days to live. Upon recovery, the woman decided to stay in the hospital and have a facelift, liposuction, and tummy tuck. She even had someone come and change the color of her hair. Since she had so much time to live, she figured she might as well make the most of it. After her last operation, she was released from the hospital. While crossing the street on her way home, she was killed by an ambulance. (laughs) Arriving in front of God, she demanded, I thought you said I had another 40-plus years. Why didn't you pull me from the path of the ambulance? God replied, I didn't recognize you.
our culture just so often lives in the denial of the truth of aging itself, mortified by how it happens even to us. To understand the suffering of death, we can look at the process the body goes through, the failing of our vital signs, and the letting go of everything in our lives. Death is the ending of that which has been familiar to us, the letting go of our loved ones. Many people die with a strong sense of uncertainty. The Buddha once said, at death a person abandons what he construes as mine. Realizing this, the wise shouldn't incline to be devoted to mine. We also see death in experience, experiences passing away moment by moment, where there is identification with these experience, experiences, there is also suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I think for people sitting who've been now been sitting for five weeks, I don't need to describe how these are suffering. <laughs> it's something that we come to know quite intimately. He said, association with what you dislike is suffering. This points back to the uncontrollability of life, that when something is unpleasant, we just can't get rid of it the way we'd like to. He said, being separated from loved ones is suffering. This is where we're just simply caught in the pain of attachment, of longing, of wanting something that isn't. He said, not getting what we want is suffering. It's intense suffering. Last weekend I was at a birthday party for three-year-olds. I really saw the suffering. (laughs) It was also, um, I just had this sense of these children acting out what goes on in my mind. And I thought it would be great, I thought it could be very skillful for people in the midst of a three-month retreat to go to a birthday party such as this. (laughs) It really brings it to light. In short, he said, it is clinging to the five mental aggregates, or the five khandhas, that are material form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. Clinging to any of the formations that we so commonly interpret as being self. These examples all point towards the fact that in the journey from birth, until death, there are many unpleasant aspects to it. We know this, and yet we try so hard to defy this. And we try to defy this because we are taking the suffering in this process as being absolute truth, thinking we are our experience and the sum of our experience, and so we suffer. Oftentimes we don't even see the suffering. 
this is because of ignorance. We see things on the superficial level, become intrigued, enchanted, or seduced by appearances. We have a tendency to move so fast from one thing to another, not seeing things clearly. I was once in Newport when there was a, a film, a Steven Spielberg, Spielberg film being made, and they had reconstructed uh, the main street of the town to go back a hundred years or so. While we were walking down the street, we came up across a site where they were doing some filming. And when I first looked at it, there was a gray stone building and what looked to be a jail. There were many props around it, and it was obvious that they were props, but the house and the jail looked totally real to me. Now as we were standing there watching the site, we started talking to the man beside us. And he started telling me, or telling us that the buildings that we were looking at were not really real. But I could see they looked real, and I was convinced of it. And I didn't say anything as he was standing there. You know, I thought I'll be courteous. And then as soon as he left, I questioned Edwin, and I said, did he really say those aren't real? And he said, yes, but I, I couldn't believe it. I had to go and look. I went around to the back of these buildings, and sure enough, it was just um, plywood and beams, and there was no building behind it. It was this front of a building, but with nothing behind it. And so it is with the appearances that we see. They appear so real, but when we investigate deeper, it isn't always what it seems. And in order to see the first noble truth, we need to look closer than the veneer of the appearances. An understanding of the first noble truth is the realization of suffering. We can see it and say, simply say, this is suffering, and we no longer personalize it. The Buddha said that suffering was to be understood. This doesn't mean that we'll find ourselves constantly miserable, but just that we have this willingness to look into suffering, rather than reacting to it through suppression, denial, or trying to get rid of it. But it's not enough for us to simply see the suffering. We also need to come to understand it. Because in this lies the possibility for freedom. But when we begin to see the first noble truth and have an acceptance of this, we then do want to understand the cause of our suffering. There's a movement of mind that goes from just the wanting to get rid of dukkha to the wanting to understand dukkha. And when we begin to investigate our experience, we begin to see that suffering stems not from the external condition, but in the mind's relationship to it. We come to understand that the cause of our suffering is craving. And this is the second noble truth.
the Buddha described the cause of suffering in this way. Bhikkhus, there is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is desire which gives rise to fresh birth, bound up with relish and passion, running here and there, delighting in this and that. In other words, sense desire, desire for existing, and desire for extinction. So craving or clinging is described in three ways. There is the clinging to sensual pleasure, the craving for existence or becoming, and the craving for non-existence or self-annihilation. We have in this retreat spoken a lot about the desire for sense pleasures. The aspect I'd like to speak about tonight is that in the desire for sense pleasure, there is the self-referencing quality to it, the desire for pleasure for somebody, like I, me, or mine. Our spiritual training is transformation of selfish desires into selfless desires, such as developing bodhicitta, living for the benefit and welfare of all beings everywhere. If instead we're caught in our desire for sense pleasures, we're living with a limited view of life and making great sacrifices for this pursuit of sense pleasure. Sacrificing for these fleeting experiences the possibility of tasting of a happiness that is not dependent upon conditions. There's a vicious circle that happens between suffering and ignorance. Ignorance or not seeing clearly underlies the craving that causes suffering. And when we are caught in suffering, we are bewildered and act out in ignorant or unskillful ways. So confused, we don't see the true problem. When we act out of our ignorance, we exacerbate our suffering. And a lot of our conditioning is to cover over this suffering and in covering over, cutting ourselves off from the opportunity to understand this suffering. Avoiding suffering through moving fast. We're so busy that we don't even know it. We start generally numbing out to life. Right in the desire is the basis of ignorance, a false belief in oneself, which is suffering. The most dangerous misconception is said to be the false idea of self. This leads to personification of a being that needs to be gratified and defended, and our whole world 
begins to revolve around this. Through the power of mindfulness, we're able to break down this false conception of a separate self. We begin to see that which we have been calling self is a series of mental and physical states constantly changing. Knowing that the desire for sense pleasure is one of the causes of suffering, and as we sit, seeing how this happens so often at all of the sense doors, moment after moment, we can also begin to see how, moment after moment, there is the opportunity for understanding. Everything in our life can be a way of coming to know the truth, coming to the place of freedom. When we find ourselves caught in suffering, we can simply look to see where the suffering really is. Who is hurting? Seeing that it's in our reaction to the experience. The second form of craving that the Buddha talked about was the desire of becoming or continued existence. The taking birth, moment by moment. Taking birth in the objects of our desire. Where there's one moment of craving, it gives birth to the next moment of craving. The power of becoming is very strong in our lives, very conditioned in our society. You know, from a young child, who, what will you become when you're older? You have a, a culture that is strongly based on goals and the pushing to fulfill these, to become something, to become somebody. we can see the same desire of becoming in our practice. We may have come to the practice wanting to become enlightened, or at least wanting to be a good yogi or meditator. It is where we are motivated to become something different than how we perceive ourselves to be, wanting approval, wanting to be liked by others. We can be motivated by the desire to meditate to enhance our own self-image, grandiose ideas of how beautiful we will become when we are fully liberated, how, how much people will love us then. The desire of becoming is seen then when the desire for liberation refers back to a self. The third type of desire that the Buddha talked about is the desire not to be. This type of desire tends to arise when we're overwhelmed with the futility of chasing after empty experiences and become very weary. In strong forms in our lives, it can lead to abuse of drugs, alcohol, or the desire to commit suicide. It's also seen when we want to get rid of things or want them not to be. We want not to be or to be done 
with something in the face of difficulty. I just want this to go away. We can see it in our practice when we're noting something and underneath our motivation to note is the desire for it simply not to be there. We're noting in a bargaining kind of way. I'll be there if you'll go away. Within this desire, we see that there is also another point of self-referencing, the I who does not want to be. The understanding of craving is the understanding of the second noble truth. We, th- we see that suffering is the effect of craving, and craving is the cause of suffering. It's a natural law and no great mystery. And it's, it, what, it is what keeps the wheels of samsara turning. The Buddha said, Monks, I do not see any other single fetter bound by which beings for a long, long time wander and hurry through the rounds of existence like this fetter of craving. Truly, monks, bound by this fetter of craving, beings do wander and hurry through the rounds of existence. The habituated pattern of craving runs from very blatant levels to much more subtle levels of craving. And whenever we habitually satisfy our cravings, we are strengthening the habit of mind towards attachment. Whenever we're able to be with our desires and not react or be run by them, we are practicing a moment of renunciation, letting go, or the cessation of them. We need to be able to understand suffering without feeling sorry for ourselves, without being afraid, without taking it personally. I once was doing a study on the Four Noble Truths that went for a and probably about a month. And what I was doing was I started out with the first noble truth, and then I would just read in different books what people had said about it, what was said in the suttas, and then I went on the second truth. And that had taken me a couple of weeks. And as I was looking at each truth, it, or the understanding of it, it was really turning my mind towards dukkha, towards the suffering. And then I came to the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. And just in that moment, on an intellectual level, I just experienced such a sense of relief. (laughs) Because it can feel quite overwhelming when we start to be more in touch with dukkha. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop with the first two truths. He went on to the cessation of suffering. And in this, he never said that it would be easy On the contrary, he said it it was so difficult that in the beginning he hesitated to teach the way. 
he said this, Though one may conquer a thousand times a, a thousand men in battle, yet he indeed is the noblest victor who, con who conquers himself. So it can be very difficult, but there is, it is the possibility of the cessation of suffering. In the cessation of suffering, the mind is free. It is no longer bound by craving or the one who is craving. It is liberation from the continual dukkha. The mind has become cooled around the great thirst for sense-desire, becoming or not becoming. It is the final quenching of all things that are ablaze. As we become more aware of craving, we become more aware of the heat of craving. In the letting go or letting be, there is a great cooling that happens. It is the extinction of greed hatred, and delusion. This comes through abandonment and destruction of desire and craving or attachment as a result of any of the experiences at the sense doors. The cessation of craving is not a forcible control or a suppression of craving, but a voluntary letting go. It is said that the mind of the arhant, or fully enlightened one, has transcended attachment to good and evil, and is supremely happiness. And supremely happy. And this is not a happiness that is based upon conditions. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa. It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering. But birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering. Where there is not attachment to my birth, my aging, and my death. At the moment we are grasping at birth, aging, pain, and death as ours. If we don't grasp, they are not suffering. They are only bodily changes. What was once a cause for suffering is no more when it does not belong to us. This is from Buddha Gosha. Buddha Gosha in the, from the Vasudhimagga. Mere suffering exists. No sufferer is found. The deed is, but no doer of the deed is there. Nibbana is, but not the man who enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. In the suttas, we hear about Nibbāna spoken of as the unborn, the unmade, unoriginated, unformed, or the unconditioned. We also hear of it as 
the highest peace, incomparable safety, and the highest wisdom. And the Buddha said a lot more about the path to Nibbana than he actually did about Nibbana itself. And it seems like it's because he was such a practical teacher. What is going to help us? And in this, he saw that it wasn't going to be so helpful to have ideas, concepts of Nibbana, but that he said Nibbana actually had to be realized. It was not something to be understood, but something to be realized. Some people have in different ways mentioned that they find it hard to believe in Nibbana. Which isn't really a surprise when what we have always known is so rooted in the concept of I, me, or mine. When we continually experience ourselves so bound by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, it becomes almost unimaginable to think that there could be complete freedom from the baggage that we carry. So it can be helpful to begin to pay attention to small moments of a type of cessation, uh, moments that we so commonly overlook. Paying attention to what it feels like when we've been lost and consumed in a thought. And then suddenly there is just the knowing of thinking, and it disappears feeling the release of letting go of that attachment. Similarly with the strong, painful mind state that we've been entrenched in, felt so identified with, that moment of disengaging, not being so entangled with it. We can also Notice the moments in our lives when there's a true generosity of heart, where there's just an open-hearted offering, where it's not self-referencing. We can also experience it in a moment of renunciation, which is a moment of non-grasping. There might also be moments when we're out in nature, and there's just an incredible peace, an ease, feeling of at-homeness, with no one who is at home. It's in the fourth noble truth where the Buddha expounds upon the way leading to the cessation of suffering. The path that we can take. And the word path implies that others have walked this way. And the Buddha also called it an ancient path, which means that it is a well-trodden path. 
that there has been many beings who have walked this way. So he taught this as the Noble Eightfold Path, a path that is the prescription for freedom from dukkha or suffering, a prescription for the recognition of the awakened mind. Although there are eight pieces to this path, they work together in much the same way as a rope is entwined. Each piece of the rope helps to strengthen. At times we may be focusing on one of the aspects of the path more than the others, but that they all need to be developed. These eight aspects can be broken down into three trainings. That of sila, or the development of virtue, morality, or ethical conduct. The training of samadhi, or the development of mindfulness and concentration. And pana, the development of wisdom. This is called the threefold division of the Eightfold Path. By cultivating the Eightfold Path, we are nurturing conditions for clear seeing awakening, ceasing to engage in habituated patterns that create more suffering. The path points towards a way of living that works directly with the causes of suffering. The path both begins and ends with the development of wisdom. And the the factors of wisdom are the factors of right view and right thought. Right view has two levels to it. The first level is a general understanding of the nature of existence, where we may seek to cultivate that which is wholesome and abandon that which is unwholesome. We live an ethical life. We have a view to living the Eightfold Path. At the highest level, right view is to fully understand the Four Noble Truths, to see things clearly, penetrating into the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and selflessness. It is through the other uh, development of the other factors that right view reaches its highest wisdom. Right thought is the, in, in the simplest sense, thought that directs the mind to the present moment, directs the mind to mindfulness. There's also thoughts of renunciation, which is free from craving, or thoughts of benevolence or non-harming, thoughts that are free from hatred. The group that comprises sila is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And this provides the foundation for our spiritual practice. When we live ethically, we find greater peace and happiness and harmony arising in our minds. We're not at odds with the world or living in the state of regret or guilt. 
it provides a peaceful foundation for our practice to develop from. So right speech is to abandon speech that is false, malicious, harsh, or idle chatter. Right speech is speaking that which is honest and useful, true and useful. Right action is where our lives, our actions, reflect the five precepts. Right livelihood to provide for others in a way that is not harmful, to provide for ourselves in a way that is not harmful to others and is fair, a way that has respect and inclusion of the well-being of others. In the cultivation of wisdom, we need right effort. And right effort is effort that is fourfold. That which prevents the arising of that which is unwholesome, abandons that which is unwholesome, cultivates that which is wholesome, and maintains that which is wholesome. By being mindful and guarding our sense doors, we prevent the unwholesome from arising. By not feeding unwholesome mind states, we cease to nourish them, and they wither and die. By putting our full energy into the practice, we develop the factors of enlightenment that Michelle talked about, and through continued effort, we maintain these factors. Right mindfulness is mindfulness of body as body, feeling as feeling, mind as mind, and objects of mind as objects of mind. It is the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness, the quality of reflecting without judging or commenting. Mindfulness helps to guard the other factors by ensuring that we don't say or act from habituated, unwholesome patterns. Right concentration enables the mind to become deeply penetrative. It's where we're harnessing the energy in the mind, unifying it, and focusing this energy on that which is wholesome and in the service of liberation. So this Noble Eightfold Path is not just something to be followed as we sit here in meditation, but it's something that can guide us in everyday life. As we continue the practice, we'll begin to understand it more deeply. It's not merely a prescription to be happy and peaceful, but to find complete freedom. The Buddha also encouraged his disciples not to be discouraged, but to instead cultivate joy. We find this joy arising as we experience the benefits of practice. 
we become joyful on this journey, not daunted by the vastness of it, but we do it because there is no other choice. I'd like to close with uh, a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa from Heartward of the Bodhi Tree. If you think that the effort we have talked about is good and a true endeavor, then take it up. Renounce that which is cheap and poor in order to acquire that which is more valuable, most excellent. Keep up the work, don't let it fail. Make it develop and progress so as to benefit both yourself and all of humanity. Then you can feel sure that in this life you have done the best thing a human being can do and have received the best thing a human being can receive. There is nothing beyond this. That's all that there is. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.